Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter. I am your host, Dr. M, and this week we are going to be looking at Volume 11, Issues 13 and 15, which correspond with coronavirus updates number 57 and 58. Okay, so Omicron sibling, the new variant BA.2, does not appear to be doing anything interesting. Current COVID cases remain 90% Omicron BA.1 and the remainder BA.2. Now, this corresponds with a time frame when this was written, now that I'm in the audio cast version, but it was written on March 14th. So this data is based on that time frame. Diseases from Omicron remain mild compared to the tough Delta strain for both BA.1 and 0.2. BA.2 appears to be more contagious, but most of the people have been exposed to BA.1 already, so there's not much naive human tissue left for BA.2 to take hold in the United States, so we're not seeing big spikes, which is great. So not much to add there when it comes to the variants, but let's switch to the quick hits. So number one, the brain continues to show signs of damage from SARS-2 infection. A group in the United Kingdom investigated brain changes in 750 excuse me, 785 UK biobank participants aged 51 to 81. They imaged each person twice with 401 cases testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 between their two scans. The remainder of the subjects were controls. They state, quote, we identified significant longitudinal effects when comparing the two groups, including greater reduction in gray matter thickness and tissue contrast in the or- orbital frontal cortex and parahippocampal gyrus. Greater changes in markers of tissue damage in regions functionally connected to the primary olfactory cortex. And three, greater reduction in global brain size. The infected participants also showed, on average, larger cognitive decline between the two time points. Importantly, these imaging and cognitive longitudinal effects were still seen after excluding the 15 cases who had been hospitalized. These mainly limbic brain image Imaging results may be the in vivo hallmarks of degenerative spread of the disease via olfactory pathways or neuroinflammatory events or the loss of sensory input due to anosmia. This comes to us from DUAD, D-O-U-A-U-D et al. 2022. So for me, what this study is saying is this. Susceptible individuals with leaky blood-brain barriers will have more SARS-CoV-2 virus penetrating the brain tissue, leading to increased brain volume loss, which could and likely does lead to cognitive decline. This is likely to accelerate issues in people predisposed to dementia and other neurocognitive or neurodegenerative diseases. The fact that this occurred in people with mild disease leads me to believe that the critical factor is brain permeability. The blood-brain barrier is supposed to keep viruses and bacteria out. Why are some people having increased issues here? For that answer, we need to understand why the blood-brain barrier becomes leaky at all. So, low oxygen states, like a stroke, are known to cause leakage of the blood-brain barrier. However, this would only account for the damage of the brains of the people with advanced disease. It turns out that chronic dietary exposure to glucose and fructose can disrupt the blood-brain barrier. From a study in Frontiers in Aging and Neuroscience, we find these comments. Quote, after 24 weeks, high-fat and fructose diets fed mice showed significantly deteriorated cognitive function concomitant with substantial neurodegeneration, which both showed significant associations with increased blood-brain barrier permeability. 
In addition, the data indicated that the loss of blood-brain barrier tight junctions was significantly associated with heightened inflammation and leukocyte infiltration. The data collectively suggests that in mice maintained on a pre-diabetic diet, the dysfunctional blood-brain barrier association to inflammation and leukocyte recruitment precedes the neurodegeneration and cognitive decline, possibly indicating a causal association, end quote. This comes to us from Takechi, T-A-K-E-C-H-I, et al., 2019. So there are some hypothetical data sets that gluten could also disrupt the blood-brain barrier as it does in the intestine, but this is speculative at this time. Basically, an elimination challenge of gluten as well as avoiding poorly processed, high-fat, high-fructose sugar diets is in your best interest and likely has an effect on blood-brain barrier permeability. If you experience brain fog or cognitive difficulties, especially if you have a history of a primary relative with celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I would highly encourage a gluten elimination diet. As always, eating healthy is the primary route to success for longevity and living well, healthy and happy. Okay, number two. All subvariants of Omicron, including BA.1 and BA.2, have relatively significant vaccine avoidance ability against mild disease. This comes to us from Ikatani et al., 2022. I-K-E-T-A-N-I. And so for me, this is basically what I've been saying all along. I'm not too sure what the validity of the boosters are at this point unless you have advanced age and advanced disease. Three, in a study looking at vaccine effectiveness against the Delta variant, we see more reinforcing data that the antibody response to vaccines wanes after the peak of eight weeks over the next few months, leaving T-cells as the main defensive reality against COVID, right at all 2022. This again leaves us in a world of relying on our natural immune response moving forward against future COVID exposures, as the reality of boosting every six months makes little to no logical sense unless you have serious comorbid or age-related risk. This, of course, assumes that you have had natural disease or a two-dose series. Four, in a well-written article on the possibilities of vaccinations against COVID moving forward, we see many directions and a lot of unknowns. It will take many months to ferret out what the future COVID vaccine recommendations will look like. We'll be watching these realities carefully. Quote, ideally, future vaccines should protect with a single injection against multiple variants at once. An easy first step would be to combine multiple spikes into one shot. An Omicron original combo, say, or an Omicron Delta original threat, triple, triple threat, excuse me. Eventually, we might hit upon a universal formula that guards against all variants, including ones we yet don't know about. Wu et al. 2022. Five, if you're interested in the origins theory, Nature has an article looking at three studies pinning the origins on the Wuhan market and the animal reservoir. Maxman, 2022. A very needed article, number six. Reviewing what was done correctly and what was done poorly during the pandemic was published in the journal British uh, Medical Communications Public Health. Some highlights that made me smile. One, emphasize education and harm reduction approaches over coercive and punitive measures. Two, reopen schools now. COVID-19 has caused by far the largest disruption in learning in recent history. As the pandemic has unfolded, there is mounting evidence that the harm of keeping schools closed dwarfs any public health benefits. Three, avoid lockdowns. The cumulative evidence suggests that sledgehammer lockdown approaches, such as the closing of all non-essential workplaces and schools, should be avoided in favor of more effective, carefully targeted scalpel public health strategies. This comes from Hal Perrin et al. 2021. 
Vaccine effectiveness with the mRNA vaccine had limited effect against Omicron as a two-dose series when looking at the prevention of symptomatic disease. It worked fantastically against severe disease and death from other recent studies. The booster dose added a layer of benefit against symptomatic disease, but that benefit waned quickly. After 10 weeks, the boosters rapidly lose benefit down to 50% range against getting symptomatic disease when infected. The booster dose raised symptomatic disease prevention benefits to the 65 to 70% range initially. Andrews et al. 2022. My take remains the same. Booster doses remain a great idea for the elderly, over 65, and all individuals with risk factors. For the articles that have been cited, you can get that in the newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com. Section 2. It made me smile to see Dr. Paul Offit provide a remarkably well-discussed take on the current state of vaccination for endemic COVID-19. He wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer as follows, quote, We are experiencing a COVID-19 pandemic that has dramatically changed the way we work, play, and live. For that to change, when we can say that we have crossed the line from pandemic to endemic and live our lives as before, we need to understand what we can reasonably expect from the immunity induced by vaccination and natural infection. Both will protect against serious illness, which causes people to be admitted to the hospital or intensive care unit, but neither over time will be highly effective at protecting against mild illness, which causes a few days of fever, cough, congestion, and fatigue. Protection against severe and mild disease is mediated by two separate immunological processes. Protection against serious illness afforded by immune memory cells. The good news about memory cells is that they typically are long-lived. The bad news is that they take time to be activated to fight against infection. Too much time to adequately protect against mild illness, which occurs more quickly after exposure to virus. But plenty of time to protect against serious illness, which takes longer to develop. Protection against mild illness, on the other hand, is mediated by high levels of virus neutralizing antibodies in the bloodstream at the time of exposure. The good news about neutralizing antibodies is that they can be highly effective at protecting against even mild infection. The bad news is that they're short-lived, lasting only three to four months after the last dose of the vaccine. The goal of the COVID vaccine, as is true for all vaccines, is to prevent serious illness. For most people with normal immune systems, two doses of mRNA vaccine appear to be exactly what we want them to be. But not everyone. Three doses are required to induce high levels of protection against serious illness for people older than 65 years of age and for people with other conditions that make them vulnerable, which can be anything from being overweight to having cancer. For people who are immune compromised, four doses might be required. Recently, as has been shown in studies in both adults and children, a booster dose of mRNA vaccines offers better protection against mild illness for a few months. For protection to last longer than a few months, another booster dose would be required. This is not a reasonable public health strategy. We can't give booster dose after booster dose all in the name of preventing mild illness. To avoid this, we need to change our thinking about COVID. Up to this point, we have done everything possible to identify and isolate people who are asymptomatic or mild illness, a zero-tolerance strategy. Imagine if we did this for respiratory viruses such as influenza. Two years before SARS-CoV-2 virus entered the United States, influenza virus caused 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths. One year before COVID-19 pandemic, influenza caused 500,000 hospitalizations and 34,000 deaths. If we had a zero-talent strategy for influenza, we would frequently test people to determine whether they were asymptomatically or mildly infected with the virus and isolate them. And we would give two doses of vaccine during the winter to keep high levels of viral neutralizing antibodies. 
This would lessen the risk of spread, but it's impractical. That's why we label influenza virus endemic. We have learned to live with the current impact of this infection. Over the next few years, a variant strain of SARS-CoV-2 might arise that resists protection against serious disease afforded by the vaccine. At that point, we will need a variant-specific vaccine. But we're not there yet. For now, we are going to have to realize that this is virtually impossible to prevent COVID that is mild without frequent boosting. So let's learn to accept the goal of the COVID vaccines to be a prevention strategy for severe and not mild illness and stop talking about frequent boosting. Otherwise, we will never be able to live our lives as we did before. End quote. Paul Offit in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I couldn't agree more. A reality check for all of us to understand a new norm hedged against the future unknowns. This is how we should be thinking. It is ridiculous in my mind to be having a constant conversation about COVID as a non-existent entity in our world. COVID is here. It is mild. If you have not been vaccinated, have not had disease in the past, you should get vaccinated because your risk is not insignificant. If you've had vaccine and or natural illness and survive without major issues and you're not in one of these high-risk categories, boosting makes zero sense to me and I'm not planning on doing it. So I leave you with that. And we're going to move on to the next COVID update, which is number 58. Okay. Now, this is corresponding with a newsletter that was two weeks later. So now we're at March 28th instead of March 14th. Omicron now has three strains. Newer variant, BA.2, makes up 23% of the current case volume of Omicron BA.1.1 is 66%. And B. A 1.1.529 is the rest. Delta is no longer registering a blip. Disease remains mild compared to the tough Delta strain. Little else to report here. Europe is seeing a new wave of cases, and many countries in Asia are seeing massive volumes based on a little a priori immunity to SARS-2 because of all the lockdowns that they put themselves through. The U.S. remains quiet for now. If we do have another wave... It would be very surprising for me if hospitalization is significant after the massive Omicron wave and the T-cell immunity that followed. There are lots of articles predicting a new large BA.2 wave. I doubt it, but time will tell. Okay, let's move on to the quick hits. Number one, there's so much conversation around a fourth booster shot being authorized for adults and even teenagers. The logic behind who should has not changed to my knowledge based on the fact that the immunity post-natural infection list lasts considerably longer than a post-two-dose mRNA vaccination or booster dose. Antibody-related immunity lasts roughly six months post-vaccine only. Natural infection plus a vaccine dose lasted well north of a year, all at all 2022. Again, this is only antibody-related. T-cell activity lasts much longer and with better mutational specificity. The bottom line remains that in multiple studies, now natural infection, once vaccinated or the other way around, vastly trumps vaccine only or boosters. Alone, again, it is highly unlikely that repeated boosters make any sense for the vast majority of us, as we just learned with Dr. Offit's piece. Only the high-risk groups appear to need boosters for boosters number four and on, despite what the policymakers say pending new quality data that would change this calculus for me. The safety profile of the fourth dose, fourth dose appears okay in very small studies from Israel and limited data sets. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine noted that 154 individuals over 60 years of age received a fourth dose with no significant side effects. 
is a tiny number in a study to know true side effect risks, which is usually roughly one to 100,000. But I assume it's unlikely that there'll be anything significant because this is their fourth dose. The antibody response was about as robust as dose three. The vaccine benefit against disease and symptoms was modest at best. This comes from through comes to us from Regev, R-E-G-E-V, et al., 2022. So not much to write home here. Minimal benefit, most likely safe, fourth dose if you need it. That's sort of it. Number two, COVID vaccine is causing increased tinnitus cases to occur, according to the Vaccine Adverse Reporting Network. Tinnitus is a perceived sound or ringing in the ears that occurs while we are awake and conscious of it, but there's no actual sound in the environment. This is likely due to an autoimmune attack of the neuronal networks in the hearing system or some other immune dysregulation in genetically predisposed individuals. The answer is yet unknown. This is also likely after natural infections from SARS-2, as noted in the long COVID patients. This comes to us from three articles, Ahmed et al. 2022, Chirakal et al. 2021, and Al-Mufaraj et al. 2021. This issue will need more research as the etiology and treatment are unknown. Treatment for tinnitus remains poorly effective for many. My take remains the same. Booster doses remain a great idea for the elderly, over 65, and individuals with risk factors. Number three, Moderna's vaccine for children less than five years old remains minimally efficacious, which is similar to Pfizer's results. The benefit was not strong against symptomatic disease, although safety appeared to be fine. The question remains, if your child is healthy and has had natural case of SARS-2 with no major issue, why vaccinate? I cannot find a reason to. I will wait to hear of a reasonable scientific reason to vaccinate this healthy, previously infected population. Number four, vaccine safety against neurologic side effects remains strong. From the British Medical Journal, quote, colleagues studied the association between COVID-19 vaccines, either vector-based or mRNA, and immune-mediated neurologic outcomes. Neither vaccine was associated with an increased risk of neurologic adverse events. Conversely, increased risks of all studied neurologic outcomes were seen after natural SARS-CoV-2 infection. End quote. Potigard et al. 2022. This is in line with all previous data that I have reviewed. Five, large increase in diabetes diagnosed one year after COVID diagnosis and illness resolution. G et al. 2022. These results have been seen a few times now. Nuance that autoimmune activity post-infection is worrisome from natural disease moving forward and bears more vigilant watching. To my knowledge, we have seen none in our clinic to date attributed to COVID infection or vaccination. Number six, a very interesting article in the New York Times about Dr. Edward Holmes and his theories that the pandemic began in a raccoon dog in the Wuhan seafood market. Quote, when Dr. Zhang got wind of a new pneumonia in Wuhan, he asked colleagues at the Wuhan Central Hospital to ship him lung fluid from a patient. It arrived on January 3rd and he used techniques he and Dr. Holmes had perfected to search for viruses. Two days later, Dr. Zhang's team had assembled the genome of the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. Other scientific teams in China had also sequenced the virus, but none made it to the public because the Chinese government had barred scientists from publishing information about it. Dr. Zhang and Dr. Holmes began writing a paper about the genome, which would later appear in the journal Nature. Dr. Zhang flouted the ban and uploaded the virus genome to the public database hosted by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. But the database requires a lengthy review of new genomes, and so days passed without the information going online. Dr. Holmes urged his collaborator to find another way to share the genome with the world. 
quote, it felt like it had to happen, Dr. Holmes said. On January 10th, they agreed to share it on a forum for virologists, and Dr. Holmes put it online, end quote, New York Times article. So this was an interesting article, and it potentially gives a possible ideology perspective, but that's all we sort of have. Again, you can get all of these article links in the newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com. Section two, non-COVID-related information. Lice outbreaks come and go as problems in the United States. With summer camps, sleepovers, and various close contact events coming up this summer, we need to be prepared for the inevitable lice events that follow. First, a lice infestation has nothing to do with one's cleanliness or socioeconomic status. It has everything to do with close contact children's activities where the scalp of one child is near another. This tends to happen often in daycare and elementary school settings. The classic ages of infestation are between 3 and 11 years of age. A louse is roughly the size of a small sesame seed. It cannot fly, but is a fast runner. Lice cannot be transmitted by animals. To us as humans are their only source of food. From the CDC, quote, spread by contact with clothing such as hats, scarves, coats, or other personal items such as combs, brushes, and tools, towels, excuse me, used by an infected or infested person is uncommon, end quote. Survival off of a human for one to two days can occur without a blood meal. However, it is believed that they stop their ability to propagate within hours. Active lice lay eggs called nits within a quarter inch of the scalp. Nits found farther away from the scalp are usually empty casings and not viable. Nits are not indicative of active disease unless they are close to the scalp. Lice are no more than nuisance. They cause itching of the scalp and nasty appearance with the critters being visible. That is reality of it. No risk of developing disease. The psychological stress of families is related to the self-judgment of cleanliness. My family's battled lice issues and while it's a hassle, it's not a long-term problem. Many of these infestations can be safely treated with over-the-counter treatments, alternative therapies, and aggressive knit combing. The latter is very important for a few weeks to prevent the lice from rehatching and starting the process all over again. If the infestation does occur, then you are dealing with either a misknit that hatched or reinfection for a poorly treated contact or treatment resistant louse. Resistance to medication has been increasing over the past decade due to the overuse of first line agents. Effective management should include topical treatment application two times over one week, knit combing daily for 10 days, and avoiding close contact with other children's scalps during the treatment period. If you are interested in alternative and non-toxic therapies, the AAP Lice Statement has great information about your options. LiceMD, Cetaphil, mayonnaise, and olive oil are options that are very safe but have unstudied efficacy. Review the AAP Statement for details of all possible options. We personally use LiceMD with good results. Using alternatives or first-line OTC medicines should be preferable to preserve the action of prescription medications for difficult to treat resistant cases. Most importantly, lice are not a medical emergency. Do not panic. Children should stay in school and receive treatment the day the lice are noted. Once treatment has occurred, send your kids back to school to fill their brains with knowledge. Retreat in a week and knit comb often for the best success. They are nasty little nuisance critters, nothing more. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed the COVID-19 updates 57 and 58 and some of the extra information on lice. So as always, hug those kids.
Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship.